Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on how technologies are improving healthcare around the world. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and today's topic are clinical trials in the digital age. One would think that the era of connectivity and big data would make it easy for the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry to find participants for clinical trials. In reality, it's harder than it may seem. Did you know that clinicaltrials.gov currently lists 302,000 clinical studies in the US? It's impossible for patients and their doctors to be aware of all clinical trials an individual might be eligible for. The data issues don't end there. How can we rely on results of trials when studies with negative results often go unpublished? How can access to the execution of trials be expanded to younger professionals? All these questions are addressed in a podcast episode I published in 2017 with CEOs of two German startups, Viomedo, which is providing better access to clinical trials for patients, and Medicinisto, which is working on improving the way the healthcare industry is communicating with physicians. The topic of today's episode is slightly different, focused on data analytics and digital tools to execute clinical trials. Will clinical trials soon be virtual? How are wearables replacing diaries and manual entries of data in clinical trials? How promising is blockchain technology as it would potentially allow patients to have control over their data after trials? All these questions are addressed by Dr. San Volkenbaum, a board-certified pediatric hematologist and oncologist, who is also the director of the Center for Research Informatics at the University of Chicago, and the co-founder of Litmus Health, a data science platform for early-stage clinical trials. Enjoy the discussion, and do leave a rating or a review of the show wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow Faces of Digital Health on Facebook, browse through episode recaps on Faces of Digital Health Medium page, connect to me on LinkedIn, or follow me on Twitter under at ZAJCTJASA to get in touch and share your feedback. All comments and ideas are highly appreciated. Now back to clinical trials. You're the director of the Center for Research Informatics at the University of Chicago, and you're also a board-certified pediatric hematologist and oncologist. Um, What came first, the love for medicine or the love of data? Well, it's interesting. So, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and so computers weren't quite ubiquitous back then, and my parents were thoughtful enough to get me a a computer, an Apple computer, when I was just uh, 12 years old. And I taught myself to program, and I really enjoyed coding, and I even had summer jobs where I was doing some coding. But uh, at the time, and in my subsequent years in high school and college, the intention was always for me to go to medical school. So while I always thought of um, computers as a hobby, uh, I was always driven to pursue medicine, which I did. And it was only um, once I finished my medical training that I uh, decided to go back and formalize my informatics and computer science training by getting a master's degree. Was there a specific trigger that kind of drove you uh, back to the data research? For me, I was always noticing um, real inefficiencies in the system 
I, I found myself always drawn to creating new systems for doing things, you know, whereas they may have been satisfied faxing forms for radiology or filling out paper forms for appointments. I would then turn and create online systems to do those things in a very um, ad hoc way where I was just doing these things on my own. And as I did more and more of them, I realized that if done in the proper way and at scale, uh, that you could make a real impact on the ability to take care of patients and to conduct research. You're also um, a co-founder of Litmus Health, which is a data science platform for early stage uh, clinical trials. So I want to dive in a little bit into the current state of clinical trials. And then we'll also move to um, the use of wearables in clinical trials, which is something that you already uh, did in the past. Um, so clinical trials are in dire need for reinvention and getting up to date with the technological advancements. Um, there is a huge gap between patients eligible for clinical trials and the av- awareness of availability of those patients to participate in the trials that are out there. So could you perhaps walk us through a little bit uh, on your expertise regarding the, the market research, the competition on the market, and the most innovative approaches uh, to get uh, to the appropriate uh, patients for clinical trials uh, in the shortest possible manner and at scale? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot to unpack there. So from 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 my vantage point as an oncologist, um, I'm in a position where I, I I help write trials, I review trials, I conduct trials, um, and that's both done as a pediatric oncologist in the Children's Oncology Group Consortium, but also um, pharma trials as they um, somewhat infrequently are applied to, to children with cancer. So my view initially of the process was was as an end user, somebody that would help get children onto clinical trials. And my initial impressions were, were, as you state, of, were of a system that was extremely inefficient, where patients would come to me often um, with knowledge of trials where they themselves had sought out the information about the trials and brought information to us that we may not have had otherwise. So the entire system of developing trials and making those trials available to the to, to patients is, of course, um, in, in, as you said, in dire need of, of, of an overhaul and how we think about that. So it was with that that very narrow focus on trials that I started to take a much broader look at the whole ch- clinical trial system. And it was um, somewhat surprising, although it probably shouldn't have been, uh, at how manual and old-fashioned the whole process is. So most clinical trials are, are still written in Microsoft Word. Uh, most trials are transmitted to the sites as a PDF file. Uh, the data are often manually abstracted from the clinical trial and then uh, and then recoded into homegrown systems at each institution. The order sets are created by hand, and then the data are collected often in third-party systems that are um, that are uh, customized to each pharmaceutical company, and then uh, and then reconverted into a format for FDA submission. You can just tell from that description that this process has grown up. Um, by connecting many different silos and with no standardization across the whole enterprise. So uh, part of my um, part of my focus has been in trying to bring some standardization to that process. And as a as a researcher at University of Chicago, we've taken the approach of trying to create standardized data wherever we can, trying to transmit standardized data, and trying to create data models that will inter- allow us to interoperate with the different systems. So ultimately, you'd want to have trials built in a trial builder. You'd want to have order sets created automatically. You'd want to have data reported to the FDA automatically. If you think about clinical trials 
like that about having uh, by having computable data, then it's not much of a leap to think about having ways of patients accessing information about trials in a more automated system. So for instance, if you're if your clinical trial inclusion exclusion criteria are computable and not buried in a PDF somewhere, it stands to reason that you could actually create a system that would let you know which patients are eligible for which trials. And that's exactly the kind of work that we're trying to do at UChicago. That's the kind of work that many groups are trying to do around the country, but where you can create a computable form of your trial that can then be leveraged to uh, pour over your patient data to look for patients that potentially are eligible. So that's one approach. Another approach is the emergence of these patient portals where patients themselves go in and they define some element of their inclusion criteria to see which uh, trials they match to. And there's a number of <clears throat> a number of private uh, groups doing this, patients like me and others. Research Match is another one. Uh, and then there's a number of other portals, like uh, University of Michigan has a public-facing portal that allows um, patients to come in and, and see which trials they match to. So this is another powerful way to do this. And I think as we see the um, emergence of fur- uh, more and more of these larger and larger consortia, uh, and, and hospital-based health systems, uh, we're going to see more and more convergence on these large systems to match patients to trials. Uh, and so I think I think the the landscape is is evolving um, to give patients more control over this. Uh, I think we're going to start to see more and more um, top-down man- mandating of of patients having access to information about trials. And I think it's in the interest, obviously, of the of the medical centers to make that information available. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that um, you have to start grassroots with uh, standardized data and a standardized approach, and then you have to have a good top-down plan for democratizing that information back to patients themselves. You mentioned data standardization, which um, I believe by today anyone that's uh, dealing with interoperability agrees that that has a huge role in um, achieving all the potentials of machine learning and data mining. However, when it comes to work in practice, I feel that uh, software providers or healthcare providers or uh, EHR vendors don't really have the right incentive to strive for the, the semantic interoperability, not just exchange of data, which is getting there with the uh, fire. So how do you see that yeah. the industry could be encouraged for data standardization on this uh, clinical uh, data structure level? So that's exactly right. So you have a number of competing forces here that are obviously conspiring to make this very difficult. And on on one hand, you have the vendors that make electronic health record systems that um, perhaps are not incentivized to create the easiest ways to move data between systems and between platforms. Uh, you have the physicians themselves who often prefer to dictate into uh, free text uh, uh, and and perhaps don't want to 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 use um, granular drop down menus for their information. Information. Uh, you have the developers, uh, or you have the um, physician scientists that have the opportunity to create very granular forms for data collection that perhaps uh, don't have the energy or the funding to do so. And then you have systems that uh, that that don't reward this type of interoperability. And so I think I think that the deck has been stacked against us in terms of trying to define these systems that are going to be more more operable. Now on the other side, you have a lot of incentives for creating better interoperability. You have better patient safety. You have better quality of uh, better quality of data, and you'll have a much easier path to conducting clinical trials. The manual process by which our our clinical research assistants have to copy and paste data out of our EPIC system into a case report form uh, is extremely archaic. And and obviously, there should be incentives for creating systems whereby that data is automatically moved from the EHR into the case report form. 
Now, are those innovations going to come from third-party companies? Right now, that's where the innovations are coming from. Ultimately, I think the um, EHR vendors are going to have to be incentivized either through um, financial incentives or through some sort of top-down mandate to create a better way for data to move um, in and out. Now, with the emergence of, of um, HL7 Fire um, and other standards like OMOP, I think we're starting to see a much uh, increased pace of the development of these technologies. And I think that the systems that are not able to um, interoperate with these technologies are going to quickly fall behind. And so I think that uh, over the next two, three years, we're going to see a real shift in uh, what we can expect out of um, systems for interoperability. A tweet posted by Shannon starting um, during the HIMSS 2019 conference was kind of um, encouraging to, to healthcare IT vendors. She wrote, uh, if you can afford a booth at HIMSS, you can afford to give data to your patients. Just saying, what's your, any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, um, the, the patients are going to have to uh, be a, a significant um part of this process. Uh, up till now, patients seem to be content with getting data in the form of PDF files uh, at best and at worst uh, scanned images on a CD. So the patients have not yet taken control of their data in a way that is ultimately going to be possible. But with the um, with the emergence of these standards, with the um, emergence of blockchain technology to help patients or to help create systems by which patients can control access to their data, uh, I think we're going to start to see more control for, for patients over their data. And I think this whole notion of the data being sequestered away in these silos at the medical institutions has to be in our has to be in archaic feature that has to go away. Uh, patients are going to own their own data. They're going to control it. They're going to um, control access to it. And they're going to want their data alongside all the other data in their lives. They're going to want to take their wearables data, their sensor data, their credit card data, and, and have um, very tight control over who has access to it and have the ability to share it in ways that, that, that they control. Litmus Health, which I mentioned before that you co-founded, uh, the data science platform for early stage clinical trials, also has a podcast um, trial by data. And in one of the episodes, you had a guest from uh, AbbVie who explained how uh, Trinet X uh, company works. It's a global health research network that optimizes clinical research. And one of the features that they offer is that they connect to EHRs from hospitals and then anonymize the patient data. So in the end, what pharmaceutical companies or their customers can get is just a number of specific patients that are eligible for um, a trial. So, for example, a pharma company would know that uh, there's 20 patients for um, a specific oncology drug that could contribute, uh, could take part in their trial. And that gives the pharmaceutical company an opportunity to reach out to the uh, institutions directly. On the first glance, I thought that um, this approach, you know, when you, you're a patient and you're not, you're just notified out of nowhere that somebody's trying to reach out to you for a clinical trial is scary. But then on the second hand, I do understand that there must be a desire from those kind of patients to be aware of the of the clinical trials that are out there. So how do you see the conflict between the desire for access and on the other hand, the fear uh, from losing uh, the um, 
patient privacy, especially in the era where uh, uh, there's more and more technologies enabling de-anonymization of the data. Yeah, so, you know, these are all great questions. We've looked at the Trinetics platform, and Trinetics is one of this emerging breed of platforms where their business model basically is to monetize the data uh, with pharmaceutical companies by making cohort discovery available and making uh, available for pharmaceutical companies to contact patients. Um, and Trinetics is not alone. There are other companies that are working in this space. I-, I think that at first glance, it looks like a great opportunity for both pharmaceutical companies to identify cohorts of patients, and it looks like good opportunities for patients to be matched up with trials. Of course, you immediately start to realize that there are potential um, uh, problems with systems like this. There's there's problems of making sure that the, that um, all patients have uh, equal access. There's issues with uh, patients having their data, uh, in, in essence, monetized in a way that they may not have foreseen. Uh, there's uh, issues for the hospital systems in uh, losing access to or losing control of their own patient data, whether it's um, anonymized or not. And so I think um, hospitals have to enter into these arrangements very carefully and have to understand what they're signing up for when they when they put these contracts and data use agreements in place. I think. I think um, patient privacy is obviously a, a, a big issue, but you know sometimes um, you could get the impression that patients aren't that worried about their about their data and their privacy, and so maybe for patients, just having access to the trials is what they want. Um, I think we have to be good stewards of our patients' data. I think we have to understand what the implications are of patient data being put out into the wild, and I think we owe it to our patients as uh, clinicians and researchers to make sure that we're putting every control in place possible. And that's one of the reasons why at U Chicago we haven't signed up for any system, Trinetics or otherwise, because we're uh, first trying to understand the most important aspect, which is how do we maintain the patient uh, privacy of the data while making sure that they have access to the trials. So I think it's it's an important point. I don't think we know the answer yet, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us to understand what the, the pluses and minuses are of any arrangement. So what do you think about blockchain? In terms of clinical trials, blockchain provides opportunities to fill out exactly the gaps that we just mentioned. So data control, data access, and of course, auditing, which could potentially give patients, you know, the opportunity to know what's happening to the data even after a trial. Yeah. And, and while, you know, of course, blockchain is a, a buzzword everyone loves to throw around. I mean, it's an important technology that is uh, a, um, a way to help ensure the uh, lineage of data and the chain of custody of information. Uh, it's an important way uh, in the clinical trials world. It's going to be an important way to make sure that the, none of the aspects of a clinical trial are changed. Um, for, for Litmus Health, we're employing blockchain technology to make sure that the, that the, that the lineage of data as it's collected off the device until the time it's reported um, is is traceable and auditable. So I think it's an important technology, and for patients that want to maintain control over their data, it's going to be an important uh, aspect of their control. Uh, the technology is very young, and there's a lot of startups trying to emerge in this area, so it remains to be seen how it's going to have an effect. Do you see any differences in clinical trials in the pediatric setting, so in oncology and hematology trials for uh, children compared to adults? I mean, in the children's settings, parents decide on everything. Is there any more push or any more interest for um, 
faster adoption of new solutions. Yeah, I mean, for uh, you know, it, for for children, parents do make the decisions, especially for kids that are under thirteen. For kids that are between thirteen and eighteen, we always ask for the ch- children's for the child's assent, as we do any clinical trial and as we talk about their data. And as when children become uh, adults, when they turn eighteen, they have to reconsent for the collection and use of, um, of 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 any data. So, so I'm not necessarily seeing. Um, uh, any difference between the uh, pediatric and adult world. Other than that, uh, as pediatricians, we often suffer from a lack of access to the same kinds of trials that the adult world has. But, but I think that is also changing. And in many of the work that much of the work that we're doing now is uh, specifically for, for, for children in the pediatric oncology space. So for pediatric cancer, the vast majority of children are treated according to a clinical trial. Um, that's whether it's a young child or a child where they give their own assent, uh, whereas the opposite is true of adults, whereas most adults are not treated on a clinical trial. Because of the because of the small numbers of kids with cancer, there's been an incredible drive over the last 50 years to create national and international consortia for children to be treated. So it's actually, um, for kids, we actually, uh, we have almost every child on some sort of clinical trial where we're collecting data that can be studied. Does it often happen that uh, children do not wish to uh, participate in clinical trials if they have the decisive power or that there's a difference in the desire between them and their parents? No, that we I really we really don't see that. In fact, the um the the children, you know, as a group, we work with children and their families together, and we all try to make sure we're on the same page with 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 the approach to therapy. Certainly, there are times during care when there's a some opposition between the children and their family. But when it comes to whether or not to be on a trial, there's almost universal acceptance in pediatric cancer um, that that uh, being on a trial is advantageous. In uh, 2016, you took part in a study by at the University of Chicago where 5,000 patients with IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease, were using Fitbits to better under- understand the relationship between sleep activity and flares in Crohn's and colitis patients. So uh, your ultimate goal was to use the models for to accurately predict the outcomes. Um, wearables are something that's been uh, uh, widely developed and uh, redefined in digital health. So I'm really curious to hear what were the results of the study and is that still ongoing? So this is a really exciting study. It's been something that, um, you know, I've been pushing for for a long time. One of the desires in forming Litmus Health was to create a way to start to use passive data collection from wearables to inform clinical trials. One of the things I always noticed was that we have still have many paper and pen ways of collecting data. So if, it, it, so in, in many trials, if you want to, um, if you want to tabulate how somebody is sleeping, you'll give them a survey to take every two weeks that asks them how they slept over the last two weeks. Uh, for patients, uh, for medication adherence, we give them a paper diary that they have to fill out. And I would see my patients in the waiting room furiously filling out their diaries because they hadn't been completing them. So now they're basically making up answers in their diaries. This is a terribly inefficient system that gives the pharma companies um, and research consortia bad, essentially bad data. So uh, we thought that uh, building a platform to use wearables as a way to collect data for trials was a really smart way to go. And so we took on, um, we started working with a, with a Crohn's physician at UChicago, uh, Dr. David Rubin, who runs a very large Crohn's program. And he was collecting sleep and activity from patients, but through paper-based surveys. And so we worked with him to, con- to create a trial where the litmus platform would be used, um, uh, where Fitbits would be handed out to patients. And in addition to the traditional ways of collecting these data, we would also collect 
sleep, heart rate, and um, and activity data through the Fitbit. So we have a couple hundred patients enrolled on this trial, uh, and uh, we're already collecting the initial results. We have um, uh, some results that are going to be presented at upcoming um, GI meetings, uh, and we're showing that uh, we're able to collect data off of a Fitbit, that we're able to collect sleep data and activity data, and um, and we're hoping to show that those data that are collected are more reliable, give better information than the old-fashioned survey techniques. And um, I think this is a trend that we're going to see continuing to grow. Um, I think a platform like Litmus allows you to easily incorporate sensors and wearables into a trial and to produce endpoints that can then um, uh, hopefully overtake the traditional endpoints that are manual-driven and have all the problems with, um, with, with memory and adherence and things like that. And ultimately, we're going to work with the team to actually develop better uh, predictive markers for patients uh, having a flare in Crohn's disease. We actually think that we'll be able to use things like Fitbit and other sensors to predict earlier on in a patient's course when they're going to have a flare of their disease um, before other traditional markers become positive. And so I think that's going to be the true power of this technology. Uh, This kind of data, so um, data that's collected through wearables can be more objective than by asking somebody what's your pain on a scale from uh, 1 to 10. But uh, then again, when it comes to quality of life, uh, you can't really measure it objectively because it's such a subjective and uh, personal uh, experience. So, for example, somebody with a low blood pressure might not be tired at all. And then another person with a low blood pressure is going to have a lot of problems with sleepiness, with tiredness. So, w- what do you expect in practice from these more um, objective uh, data sets? Yeah, so that's a, a great point because. Um uh, the traditional quality of life metrics are very much uh, survey-based, and, and it's been difficult to use those quality of life metrics as endpoints, especially in oncology trials. I think what we're seeing now is the um, emergence of a whole new way of thinking about quality of life metrics, uh, looking at the comparison to patients' baseline, um, uh, perhaps defining better endpoints for patients, as you point out, for a, a particular patient that um, is already debilitated, uh, their quality of life change may, is going to be much different than somebody who's been running marathons who who has a change in their quality of life and you can't use the um, actual endpoints as, a, as as an exact objective measure and so measuring a change in performance I think is actually better suited to wearables because you can actually look for a particular patient how their activity changes from day to day how their sleep changes from day to day and actually um, we're finding with some of the Crohn's patients that we're able to look at uh, things like heart rate variability steps um, uh, uh, sleep and actually watch for any particular patient how that activity or how that measure changes compared to their disease status. So I think that's a long way of saying that I, that we need to, de- to better define these quality of life endpoints. Uh, and I think that the sensors and wearables are actually going to make it easier to um, create better objective measures of quality of life. There's been a, a research published just recently on the use of Fitbits to um, encourage walking of patients after surgery. And the study showed that um, the patients that walked uh, a thousand steps after the surgery had a slightly lower risk of a prolonged uh, stay. What got me thinking when I saw this was that uh, perhaps wearables uh, are 
uh, th- there's a shift in the purpose of the wearables because um, as consumers, we get tired of them at, after approximately uh, half a year, according to some research. But maybe uh, this kind of use, so for uh, explicit uh, measurements in clinical trials um, as this one, uh, could bring a shift in uh, how wearables can be used in, in medicine. What do you think? Yeah, so there's a huge emerging area for the use of um, wearables both in the hospital and outside of the hospital, uh, using wearables in the post-operative period to look at patients in the hospital and then monitor their transition home, I think is a powerful way to understand a patient's activity and how that changes. I think we're going to see the use of wearables in patients with all sorts of different um, different diseases as they go home. You can imagine a, a cancer patient uh, having a wearable that would help track Um, their activity and help relate that to their level of nausea and vomiting or their ability to go back to work. Uh, You can combine the wearables with, um, you know, with, uh, for instance, the litmus application has the ability to put all sorts of different surveys and questions for patients on their phone. And you can combine the wearable data with those questions to help give you a much better picture for how the patient is performing, give them a better way to contact their nurse or their physician and actually help decrease the amount of times patients might bounce back to the hospital and help, um, help increase uh, uh, their ability to recover at home. So I think we're just starting to see uh, a wide uh, ar- array of applications for wearables and sensors and mobile technology. It's, it, it, the wave is just starting to hit. That's on the on the clinical side. And on the consumer side, uh, there's also this question of are uh, wearables going to turn into uh, more serious clinical sensors and are going to be used on uh, uh, broader population for early detection of serious diseases. One such case, of course, would be the new ECG feature on Apple Watches. And uh, there was uh, quite a lot of critique from the doctor's side uh, when this came out that uh, now they're just getting... uh, uh, too many calls from concerned healthy people, which is taking away their time uh, for the, the ones that really need help. So I think this is a huge issue, right? So every time you have a technology that's going to be uh, particularly sensitive and not very specific, you're going to have a lot of false positives that end up getting reported. Um, I think the same could be said if you started to allow everybody to have a CT scan anytime they wanted. Uh, I think that there's a, a danger in um, in over-testing uh, because you have to be able to understand how you're going to deal with all the positive results. And uh, I think that we're in this interesting time now where the technology has become so cheap and so pervasive that we have the ability to put all sorts of sensors on people, but we haven't created the infrastructure or the regulation around how we're going to deal with the the findings patients have. So I think it's the responsibility of the vendors and the sensor makers and the software developers to to, to, to show some restraint and to try to understand um, what the implications are of, of creating these platforms without having the um, subsequent infrastructure underneath it to support it. Uh, and I think it's up to groups like Litmus and other software platforms to uh, to not over promise on on what these sensors and endpoints are delivering. What you're kind of referring to is the shift to um, the informed consumer era that we're now in. And um, in one of your presentations, you also mentioned that uh, patients are very eager to share their data from their wearables with their doctors. And then doctors don't really know what to do with that data. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously... Um 
patients are collecting so much information about themselves. Uh, they bring their information into their physician, and there's really no way to integrate those data into the medical record at this point. And to be honest, I don't think you'd want to integrate somebody's entire Fitbit history into their EHR. What you'd want to integrate are well-defined endpoints that um, that are clinically relevant to that patient. So uh, um, for an example, Fitbit offers you an average daily heart rate that they calculate, but there's no documentation for how that average daily heart rate is calculated that I can that I can find. So even if somebody came to you and says, here's my Fitbit-derived average daily heart rate, how could a physician know in any way how to include that in the patient's information or a part of the patient's medical record? I think there have to be transparent um, uh, algorithms for how we're using the data. There has to be um, documented um, validation for these metrics, and then there has to be a clear set of standards for how the data are collected and how they're put into the electronic health record. We're in very early days of these discussions. I think the mistake would be to just start um, pushing data into the EHR without thinking about these questions of standardization and endpoint calculation and data provenance and lineage to start with. We mentioned a few examples already uh, when wearables can be very useful in the clinical setting and in the clinical trials. And um, the next uh, question that I have for you is, what role do you see uh, for wearables in uh, the future of pragmatic clinical trials or in the regular clinical settings. There's also a shift coming in on the clinical trials evolution, uh, which is rethinking if the clinical trials need to be done in a very specifically defined uh, setting uh, or can they go into a virtual form, a telemedically supported form? What's your uh, view on how uh, the the whole design of clinical trials is changing with new technologies? I'm very much a fan of the notion of all patients from all data at all times, which is this probably unattainable state where um, where every patient would would receive their care both in and out of the hospital, and all the data that's collected could be used to study the patient's condition and study the uh, study the population. I think important steps along that path are going to be the evolution of uh, of of um, Having patients uh, collect data, whether it's through wearables or other sensors, environmental sensors, their phone, and have those data be used in a rational way to, to study the patient's health and illness. So I could imagine a, a future state where uh, where people receive uh, a wearable like a Fitbit or a Garmin and they wear that all the time, whether they're healthy or not. Um, they have um, uh, they give a certain amount of access for data from their phone. And those data are actually used to study the patient in a very pragmatic way, whether or not they're enrolled on a trial, and those data are ultimately able to be used to understand more about the patient's emergence of disease, their response to therapy, their response to environmental factors. I think it, we're going to see an evolution uh, toward toward this much more practical way of, of practicing medicine. I think we have a lot of um, regulatory issues to overcome. I think the pharma world of pharma and the FDA are not ready to start accepting data that's not collected under more rigorous conditions, but I think that we're trending in that direction ultimately. And so I'm very hopeful that we'll attain the state where, you know, all the world essentially becomes a clinical trial as people start to collect data from everyday experiences and that data are used as part of real world, real world data for, um, for evidence. So I think uh, wearables and new technologies have quite a lot of potential to disrupt clinical trials uh, on other 
other levels uh, as those that we mentioned already. Like, for example, on the one hand, you said that uh, uh, clinical trials are done in very rigorous setting, which is also because uh, the clinical trials are in the first sense uh, there to prove if something works or not, which also means that the results can differ quite a lot from uh, when the drug or a th new therapy comes into the real world setting. So uh, from that perspective, um, I don't know how much you think that uh, the the wearables or, or other sensors could disrupt the whole pharmaceutical um, scene because um, there would be more transparency in a way. The FDA is very excited to see more data from wearables and sensors. I, I think the FDA has um, made it clear that they will help pre-certify the use of certain um, algorithms and techniques for collecting these data. Uh, pharma is catching up. Uh, I think there's needs to be more external pressure on the pharmaceutical partners to start collecting data more passively uh, through wearables, but I think we'll also get there. Um, I don't think there are any insurmountable barriers to using wearables and sensors in a much broader way, and I think uh, over the next uh, year or two, we're going to see a, a much greater um, uh, use of these technologies for clinical trials across the board. Do you have any uh, reservations regarding the the quality of all the data? Because uh, in the end, uh, all the machine learning or artificial intelligence approaches that uh, uh, draw conclusions from the data are only as good as the data that you input in the first place. I'm not worried about the quality of the data. I'm worried that we're not going to take enough time to understand the quality of the data. There's no doubt that... Um, certain sensors will collect data more accurately than other sensors. That's not to say that a more accurate sensor is better for any particular trial. What's important is that you understand how your sensor is collecting data, how the variation of the data um, looks. Uh, you're able to detect um, inconsistencies in the data that are collected, uh, and you're able to uh, make um, predictions about uh, when patients are, for instance, not wearing their device or if they've Uh, uh, if they're wearing it on the other arm, for instance. These are all things that we can measure and predict. What I worry, though, is that my reservation is that we will blindly use these devices to collect data and then blindly apply m machine learning and other AI algorithms to the data without really understanding the underlying quality of the data and how it looks when you model it. Much of what my group uh, does at UChicago and much of what Litmus Health, Health does is to is to model, profile, and understand the data before we even think about applying other algorithms to it. That's where the important um, the important aspects lie, I'm, I'm quite sure. I think that the concern about not really understanding the data in the right manner is, is there for a reason, especially since we know that some of the AI techniques, such as reinforcement learning, are basically based on giving recommendations where we know the inputs and we know the output, but outputs, but we really don't know how the machine got to a specific conclusion or recommendation. That's the danger of a lot of these deep learning algorithms is you just don't 
understand um, uh, what what the model is paying attention to when it makes any particular recommendation. You know, for the most part, we've tried to use more traditional machine learning techniques uh, where you can actually understand why the recommendation is being made or how the model is working. But of course, the deep learning techniques are going to are, are going to become more and more um, prevalent. And so then there's going to be a whole science around how do you understand which recommendations to take, how do you understand um, which predictions are accurate, and how do you explain that to patients. So that's a whole nother, obviously a whole nother podcast to talk about how AI is going to be applied to medicine. But it's an interesting field that is um, obviously uh, taking a lot of headlines right now. We talked a lot about the potentials of how clinical trials could be redefined. You mentioned in the beginning how clinical trials are done and how many things are still done manually. What do you think, how we could uh, improve or encourage the, the faster uh, adoption or um, evolution of, of the whole clinical trial settings? Because I feel that um, if you're not a patient and you just read news, you really have the wrong impression of uh, how things are done and then can be very disappointing when you see that uh, you're very limited in your choice, at least until you dig deeper in the research and the market. No, I love, I love the quote that Greg Simon has where he says, um, we need to have the clinical trial systems that your grandmother thinks we already have, right? So, you know, we, we exist in this world where I think patients would perceive that we have wonderful systems underlying all of our data collection. Everything's automatic. Everything moves just like your bank data moves around. There's a tremendous uh, inconsistency there, and mo- much of the data are collected manually. The difference is going to come in several directions. One, there's going to have to be an acknowledgement from the pharmaceutical companies that ultimately they're going to collect better data, more cheaply and faster through the use of automated methods using standardized data. There's going to have to be some push from the regulatory agencies uh, that are going to mandate the use of of more standardized techniques for collecting and reporting data. Already, there's a mandate um, by the FDA that data have to be submitted in a particular CDISC-defined format. So so that is starting to change as well. Um, uh, and then I think the, um, the, the governmental agencies that support these trials, like the NIH and the NCI, are going to have to start building in regulations into their uh, funding announcements that are going to require this type of interoperability and reporting. And as well, uh, the foundations that support this work um, are going to have to do something similar. I work with several foundations that support pediatric cancer research, and I've made several recommendations to these groups that in their funding announcements and their awards, they need to require the standardization and rapid sharing of the data to make it available to other researchers. So all of these pressures, I think, are going to combine to really force the issue, and I think we'll start to see an evolution in how data are collected and shared over the next couple of years. In the U.S., there's um, a rising uh, development of the use of data and AI in the hospital setting. So hospitals are using uh, uh, various data types to optimize their processes. There's um, examples of control centers inside the hospitals which help uh, optimize how care is delivered on an, on an everyday uh, level. With the rising amount of uh, EHR data, is there also going to be uh, an increasing need for um, data science scientists in the hospitals? Because there's probably it's probably not realistic to expect that um, every doctor would get would become a data scientist or informatician, uh, such as you are. No, no, and a lot of the work that I do um, at the University of Chicago is around 
the development of training and education pathways for physicians, nurses, researchers, other staff. Uh, and you're right, not everybody is going to be trained in an informatician, but what everybody needs to have is, an, is a particular level of data literacy, where they understand what it means to be a steward of good data, what it means to understand um, about data quality and how data are used. Because you're absolutely right, the increasing amount of data that are collected, both inside and outside the hospital, are being used for all sorts of um, machine learning uh, automated automation of repetitive tasks, uh, predictive analytics uh, for patients, patient engagement, and and these um, methods have to um, are only as good as you said, are only as good as the data underneath them. So I think we're going to increasingly rely on um, on people to be good stewards of data, and I think that's where a lot of our education and training has to be focused. Now, if we look at a platform like Litmus Health. Uh, you know, we, we think that it's critical that people that use the platform understand the data that are being collected, but also have some, uh, element of trust in the, in the elements that are being, re- that are in the data elements that are being reported. And so that goes back to being very transparent about your algorithms, being very open about how the data are collected and used, and making the end user a good steward of the data and the information they're receiving. I think that's uh, one uh, additional huge area that needs to be addressed better in healthcare. Uh, that's, um, you, you know, how, how data is stored and how data is managed from, from the medical staff point of view. I think like a lot of topics that you mentioned from data stewardship, uh, we didn't talk about cybersecurity, but all these areas are um, not uh, addressed often enough until there's a breach and then everybody freaks out. Do you have any advice on how that could be improved on an institutional level? To be honest, the issue I see most is a lack of top-down support for these initiatives. I think um, I often see that there is a push to have um, full data governance, but without devoting any um, uh, and allocating any funds to the effort, whereas very mature data organizations have significant funding and FTEs devoted to data governance um, across the institution. And so I think that kind of top-down, not only vocal support, but financial support is what's going to be really important for institutions that want to become very data mature. This was the 34th episode of Faces of Digital Health. The next episode will be published in two weeks when you will hear about the Estonian digital health infrastructure with Hanelo Retal, Chief eHealth Specialist at the Estonian Ministry of Social Affairs. Here's a quick teaser. When we started building our system, it was in the late of 80s, then we didn't have the system in place. We, we didn't have anything, basically, but other countries that had their infrastructure on, in paper format. And in the 90s, when we started building our systems, then we could build it from scratch and uh, use the ICT solutions. For example, Estonians never used fax machines and... Uh, these kind of solutions for uh, sending documents so right away we could establish uh, digital solutions tune in in two weeks